1: Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. And I am here with two guests who will be debating an especially timely question on which they have both studied a lot and yet really, truly disagree on. The setting for this question is the time that we're in right now, a time when vaccines against COVID-19 have been successfully created. It has happened in record time. And their rollout in places like the U.S. and Europe is finally underway, in other words, in the rich countries. But it's also a time when vaccination in poorer countries is lagging way behind. And the question we're debating is whether companies that develop these vaccines should keep the sole right to manufacture and thus profit from those vaccines, according to the tradition of patent protection or whether in this time of crisis, we should be suspending those patent protections and letting any manufacturer in any country produce them. We're going to hear opening thoughts from both of our speakers, and then we're going to have a freewheeling conversation on the arguments. So let's get started. First, uh, Thomas Cooney, you'll be arguing yes to this question that vaccines should be protected by patent law in this moment. You are Director General of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations. You're working right in the middle of it all. And Thomas, I just want to say, welcome to Intelligence Squared. In a few minutes, you'll be telling us why you think these uh, patent protections should stay in place in this moment. But I just first want to say welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And your debate opponent today will be Brooke Baker. And Brooke Baker is a law professor at Northeastern who specializes in intellectual property and access to medicines. And is also right now one of the foremost advocates against these protections. Brooke, let's get started with you and take a minute or two to tell us your basic argument for why vaccines should not be protected by patent protection in this moment as a response to COVID-19. What is it that you're going to try to convince our listeners of?
2: Well, I I think uh, there are are three basic arguments. Uh, First, there's been massive background public financing of, of vaccine technologies for many years, including particularly for COVID-19 vaccines. A report just issued yesterday had estimated that even before 2020, $17 billion had been invested towards the uh, vaccines that are currently being deployed against against COVID. So there's been, and then as people know, massive investments as well, uh, post, uh, you know, the coronavirus coming on the scene, uh, with, with Operation Warp Speed in the US alone having funded over $13 billion towards uh, product development, clinical trials, and, and early manufacturing upscale. So there's been, contrary to the premise that companies have been the major investors, that, that does not seem to be true. Secondly, this is a an unprecedented global pandemic which threatens to recircle the world as new variants are discovered. If we don't uh, uh, immediately begin to greatly expand supply and increase equitable access, uh, we are going to face the the pandemic uh, for years to come instead of uh, perhaps bringing it to its knees in in a much shorter time period. And then I guess the third point is that we've let the status quo exist for a year now. Companies have basically had untrammeled rights. And, and what is the consequence? The consequence is inadequate supplies, artificially restricted supplies, artificially high prices, and grossly inequitable access where, for example, the vast majority of vaccines that have been distributed thus far have been distributed to rich countries uh, and poor countries lag far, far behind. And current estimates are that, that many people in lower and middle-income countries might not receive vaccines at the current pace until 2023 or even later. So um, we are all at risk if we leave the status quo as it is.
1: All right. Thanks very much, Brooke. Uh, Thomas, I'd like you to respond, not right now, immediately going point by point in response to what Brooke said, uh, because that's what we're going to do over the course of the conversation. But just your basic argument for why these patent protections should be staying in place at this time. And if it does respond to some of what Brooke said, that's fine. But we'd also like to have that conversation be more articulated in a few moments.
3: You know, during our discussion today, we really must not lose sight of the millions of people who have lost their lives. This is really the biggest threat the world has faced in terms of public health and lives and livelihoods have been impacted beyond all recognition. The COVID-19 pandemic has really shone a light on the critical role of the biopharmaceutical industry in combating this public health crisis through expertise, innovation, and resources. Let's face it, a year ago, few people would have believed it possible not to have won but several safe and highly effective vaccines. And few would have hoped that we would be witnessing delivery of doses of approved vaccines being delivered to Kigali, Accra, Abidjan, and Nairobi in Africa at the same time as the first vaccines reached Tokyo. So before we get into the weeds on debating patterns of COVID-19 vaccines, let us acknowledge a few facts. We have a first moonshot fact that innovation has brought us multiple vaccines in record time. Before COVID-19, the fastest vaccine ever developed was against Ebola. It took four years. COVID, it took 326 days. And this is due to unprecedented collaboration where you had academia teaming up with biotech, biotech teaming up with big pharma and big pharma from rich countries with developing country manufacturers. The second moonshot, and I think few people realize the scale of that is pre-COVID-19, global vaccine capacity for all the vaccines, measles, flu, shingles, polio, hepatitis, was 5 billion doses per year. Now, in 2021, we are talking about 10 billion doses for COVID-19 vaccines alone. Therefore, we are talking about trebling the global vaccine capacity, which would not have been possible without this unprecedented collaboration. And when you actually look where do these vaccines come from, biggest vaccine manufacturer this year will be India. Now, most of the vaccines in India are due to tech transfer, which means you have big pharma teaming up with the likes of Serum Institute or Biologically and others And we really need to make sure the vaccine to fight these pandemics must be free to everyone the world over, because we all know no one is safe until we all safe. But we are in a war against the virus. We are in a war against time. And time is not on our side. And we need to be careful not to be distracted by political debates about patents at the time where we see everybody doing what everybody wants us to do from the industry. Thank you, Thomas. All right.
1: So so let's let's talk about all of this. Um, and again, we're going to go point by point through uh, both of your arguments, but the starting place the, that I would like to, to jump into is overall... Um, I think a profound but clear disagreement on whether the situation is somewhat in hand now, somewhat being addressed uh, in uh, ways that can be depicted as a success or not. So I hear, Brooke, from your your saying that the situation is kind of a mess, kind of terrible, uh, that so many people are not being vaccinated in large parts of the world. And I hear from Thomas, yeah, that may be true, but look at how Almost stunningly successful, this effort has been. That that, it, that enormous credit should go to what's happened so far, and that in that there is promise for a, a, a quite clear-cut solution to the larger problem, and that that problem is being solved. So, I, I'd like you to, to respond to the. I, I would say the, the the more positive scenario that uh, that Thomas is laying out vis-a-vis your perception that things are really not, that we shouldn't be talking about success?
2: Okay. So I, I think that's a fair question uh, and a, uh, to, to answer. Um, so I, I think we can all agree that there was an unprecedented uh, period of open science uh, with the sharing of the uh, genome for, for COVID-19. Uh, we, we know that there was uh, an explosion of publishing uh, that was open source publishing and scientists really did cooperate uh, extensively. At the same time, government poured massive amounts of uh, money almost immediately to the uh, prospective vaccine manufacturers. Uh, again, at Operation Warp Speed, over $13 billion. And it there's no doubt that, that those public resources spurred some uh, product development by the uh, private industry uh, that the money was given to. Uh, one of the issues is that there were essentially no strings attached to that public funding except uh, early supply to – and preferential supply to rich country buyers that, that had helped fund the, the product development and clinical trials in early manufacturing capacity. So uh, – we, we did get things done quickly and it is uh, it, it is a testament to the the scientific cooperation that occurred in early stages and it is a testament to public funding and no one would deny that that private industry contributed its resources towards this effort as well and nor, nor does anyone really claim that those uh, private sector uh, efforts should not be compensated in any way uh, the, the question is well, we had that uh, massive, those massive investments, and that and that period of a kind of uh, open science and, and and cooperation. And then we, but we basically left the existing intellectual property regime in, intact. And it's not just patents; it's also trade secrets, uh, which are vital uh, background to the to the technology transfer that's needed so that someone else can produce these vaccines. Um, and we left those questions in in the hands of of industry. We see now, you know, that there have been a lot of contract manufacturing agreements. Basically big uh the the vaccine innovators entering into partnerships either with big uh other big pharma companies or, or bigger pharma companies. And with vaccine which is Which is
1: being done voluntarily, and that's that's Which is being
2: done voluntarily, yep. and it shows that technology transfer is possible. Uh, you know, we often hear arguments from industry that, that technology transfer to developing countries is impossible. But, of course, they've entered into, as I understand, over 150 such contract manufacturing agreements thus far uh, in the initial stages of the pandemic. Um, but there's underutilized capacity. And there's vast numbers of people who have not yet received vaccines. Um, you know, I would, I would have loved to be having, having this debate last year so that we could have had some even more expansive production this, this past year, and we'd be in a very different place right now.
1: I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. Let me let Thomas respond to some of what you're, you're saying, Thomas, and, I, and I'd like to do that by asking you also to take on this question: that um, what what Brooke is talking about and what others are advocating with this notion of a, a, a people's vaccine is a is a one-time only this is a global emergency case sort of situation that it that it, it's not a a long term assault on on patent protections but that it's a, it's a one time un, incredibly unusual situation unusual circumstance where as both of you agree time is of the essence in getting uh, a global uh, herd immunity established and that um, that the the waiver rules that are in place are, are made for exceptional situations. And this is an exceptional situation.
3: I fully agree. This is a one-time challenge. It's the biggest public health challenge since Spanish flu in 1918-19. And I think the industry has really responded as I, as a long-term industry associate, would always have hoped the industry would. This is not business as usual. This is business not as usual. And what you see, So, Brooke was talking about, I would have wished this would have happened a year ago. Now, come on, how can you go even faster than the 326 days? How can you actually get the game-changing new technologies as fast to the people? And what more could you have hoped than we brought together suppliers vaccine manufacturers from developing countries and from industrialized countries. And we spent two days on the Chatham House rules to talk about where are the bottlenecks, what more could be done, what kind of partnerships could be done. I can tell you there was concern about the shortages of glass vials, of lipid nanoparticles, which are needed to wrap up the mRNA vaccine, which have been so much game-changing, the filters, the giant plastic bags, you need for the single-use bioreactors. People, engineers, scientists from India, China, as well as Europe and the US, they are concerned by these bottlenecks. Sharing know-how and the willingness to share know-how was not mentioned once because that's what's happening right now on a large scale.
1: So, So Thomas, is your point that we don't actually need to change the rules because in a de facto way, The situation under the existing rules is addressing the situation as best it
3: can be? You know, I really believe that the industry is behaving in a way you would have hoped it to behave during a global pandemic. And also, a lot of it is also due to public-private partnership. We in Europe, we watch with a bit of envy how the U.S., BARDA, was really able, due to speed, willingness from the government to invest at risk and co-finance at risk research and development and scaling up manufacturing, but also actually do what the U.S. is so good, which means not insist on heavy bureaucratic procedures, but allow entrepreneurial spirits Uh, to do what they are supposed to do. And Paul Krugman last week in the New York Times, in my view, wrote an excellent op-ed where he compared the disappointments and frustrations in Europe with the success on this vaccine development and rollout in the US. The US really, we, in the rest of the world, we owe a lot. We wouldn't have that many vaccines if it hadn't been for the fast action in the US.
1: Brooke, I want to talk about the issue of profits now because what patents basically come down to protecting uh, the ability of the manufacturer and the developer of the vaccine or any product to protect their profits and not face competition uh, in the marketplace. That that word hasn't come into the conversation yet, but I'd like to know where you believe it belongs in this conversation.
2: Well, I, I think partially, you know, again, I, I keep harping back to public investments because they significantly de-risk uh, the, the product development and clinical trials, and even the could, could you menu-
1: could you break apart the word de-risk just for the layperson? Well, to, well it, to, it means to, yeah.
2: it, it means that you know the U.S. Uh, and other public funders uh, gave money to the, the drug companies, the vaccine manufacturers, to, to develop the product. And, and literally, you know, billions of dollars in, in, in coffers of the industry, which it could then spend to further develop, optimize the product, um, to, to conduct the clinical trials and even to invest in initial expansion of, of capacity. And so normally the argument of industry is, well, we pay for all of that on our own. We take on financial risk, So not only should we get normal profit reward, we should get ex- extra profit reward because we, we are making those investments at, at some risk of, of, of non-success. Well, here, the, that risk is, is, is de-risked. The risk is actually taken on by the, by the public – because so much uh, investment was made by the public in the product development and clinical trials. And and then, you know, once the products come to market, we know that this is likely to be, and has already proven to be, a very lucrative market where the companies are more than earning back those additional research dollars that they put in. So, for example, Moderna is projected to make $18 billion this year from its sales. Pfizer uh, and and Biotech working in partnership are expecting sales between fifteen billion and thirty billion dollars. And then we have Johnson and Johnson, and then we have AstraZeneca, and then we have Novavax. We have other vaccines that are coming on on board as well. Not not to mention the the Chinese and, and Russian vaccines as well. There are lots of lots of money to be made, and we know that some of the prices are quite high. Uh, we know, for example, that the the Biotech uh, Pfizer product is. $19 and 50 cents per dose, $39 for, for a course of vaccination. Uh, and there are estimates that the cost of production uh, is much, much lower than that. The dispute about how much it is, but uh one one university group had said it said could be two to three dollars. The undisclosed no-profit price that uh Pfizer has promised uh in negotiations with COVAX uh, are estimated between six and seven dollars. And so there are significant markups in the in the uh, already, and, and also I would mention which something which as Pfizer has said, which is once they get beyond the, the pandemic. Uh, acute phase in the U.S. and Europe, they may well raise their vaccine price to as much as $150 or $175.
1: Let me take it back to Thomas then. The, the part of your argument that I'd like to hear you respond to, Thomas, is um, d- the argument that because public money was involved in the development of these vaccines, that the the notion that the companies therefore get to own the patents fully and outright and to earn whatever profits might come their way, is not justified in this particular case. So this is separate from the issue of, the, of the, the degree of the emergency out there, but just the structure of the deal, let's put it that way, uh, that, it, that there seems to be something unfair or unjust about the companies having the ability to uh, benefit fully from the uh, sales when the investment was not fully theirs. What's your response to that?
3: There are two elements which we really need to bear in mind here. On the one hand, the huge health impact, the millions of lives lost because of COVID-19, but also the huge economic impact. The IMF chief economist has estimated the cost of the pandemic at 375 billion dollar per month. When you look at the vaccines impact, vaccines effectiveness in terms of return on investment, I think this is probably the best public health investment the world has ever had. Therefore, you really need to compare the cost of the pandemic with how much we now benefit from having some vaccines. Having said that, the industry early on said this is not business as usual. I recall a year ago uh, when I could still travel, I came to New York and I wanted to get vaccinated against shingles because the vaccine is not yet available in my country. I paid about $300 for a shingles vaccination and you need two doses. Here we talk about, you know, on the higher end of the $19 to $20 per dose, We talk about all companies offering low prices for this COVAX partnership for the poor countries in the world. And when you look in the investment in these vaccines, it's really, it's a fraction compared to the benefit we get seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of the economic impact. But I think something is also needs to be borne in mind. One is Moderna or BioNTech are not the same as Pfizer. Faisal, for example, publicly said from the beginning, we do not want barter money to at risk to help us with the R&D. We invested risk ourselves. But at the same time, they also committed to selling their vaccines at socially responsible price. When you look at the Pfizer stock compared to a year ago, it hasn't benefited from their huge success. Who would have expected 95% efficacy of a COVID-19 vaccine? On top of that, very safe. BioNTech and Moderna, that's a different ballgame because... Until 2019, I just recently looked at the annual reports of both of the companies, you had a lot of risks, you had a lot of trials, and you didn't have single sales yet. Therefore, Moderna and BioNTech, and they deserve it, they now harvest 30-year investments in mRNA technology, which has really become a game changer for all of us and will hugely impactful for future pandemic preparedness if we don't take the incentives away which made us respond so fast. Brooke, do you want to respond?
2: Well, Again, the evidence is that a great deal of the mRNA uh, Technology uh, uh, background scientific research was funded by the NIH, um, and 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 again yes, Wh- were which pri- is
1: which is true of which is true of not just this vaccine, but is that uh, academic uh, and government investment in research is is often something that ultimately is fed into uh, the development of. Pharmaceutical products, is right. it not?
2: Certainly, I mean that's the basic scientific research. But this was specific investments in the MNRA technology platform, in part because you know many of the major drug companies had walked away from vaccines. They've started. They're certainly coming back, and some of them are running back right now. Um, but also, there are some of the more expensive vaccines, like the shingles vaccine, uh, and, and, and a couple others that that, that are. Financially Attractive to companies. I guess I, I want to uh, hop, hop back on on maybe a, a, a couple a couple issues. I think I think one of the things that Thomas and I would disagree with is 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 the industry um, justified in giving such preferential access to rich countries. So to me, there are three problems with with the IP system that we that we've allowed to continue. And for, have,
1: for folks to understand IP system you're referring to intellectual property
2: system intellectual and, property and the, which and, would be and, right. which would be patents and trade secrets um, not just patents but also trade secrets and, and that it, it does get them let them limit uh, supply now I agree with Thomas that there's been investments in contract manufacturing and there's more supply than, than we might expect they also get to set price and and can promise to increase price in the future and they want. But but one of the things that's most concerning about the present circumstances is that grossly inequitable supply. So you know, I looked at some figures this morning. My, my state, Massachusetts, has vaccinated only vaccinated uh, one point three million people. Well, in as as far as I understand, the vaccinations in uh, all of sub-Saharan Africa are only two million. So my one state, Massachusetts, has, has been successful in vaccinating more people. Uh, than, than the entire, an entire continent. The U.S. has uh, vaccinated almost a hundred million people, uh, with one dose so far. So we have hugely inequitable distribution. And those were because of commercially driven supply agreements that were a nexus between the commercial prerogatives of the companies to sell to whoever their pro, you know, priority, uh, customers were. And, and those were in countries that had invested in them. And, and then, uh, to, to set the price as well. So that's, you know, they set a higher price for, for the rich countries. They, they sold preferentially them, and then the rest of the world is waiting in line. And I'm not sure that this uh, estimate that they'll be able to produce 100 billion doses this year is, is really accurate. We see that uh, uh, AstraZeneca and Serum Institute are both having enormous problems with, with their production. We see Moderna and, and Pfizer scaling up, but but J and J and J is is far behind. There there are many estimates that the supply contracts um, and promises that are made uh, are going to be quite delayed.
1: Do those difficulties and complications not argue against the idea of licensing um, development in places that may have even less sophisticated opportunities to produce? Uh, you know. Um, I don't want to disparage South Africa or India, and both places do produce pharmaceuticals. But if coming coming somewhat cold to the production, do those if there are complications in production in Europe and the United States, are we so sure that licensing production in these other places would not hit the same kinds of challenges?
2: There, there would be delays, I, I, I agree, and there would be complications. But the question is, would we want a system that, that builds in redundancy and maybe even some excess uh, doses? Uh, but would allow us to vaccinate the world quickly. It would not result in this, you know, uh, vaccine nationalism, where the rich countries are supplied first, and the poor countries uh, you have to wait in line. Which, which just gives the pandemic you know, a, a chance to, to mutate the virus, a chance to mutate, which we're already seeing with the new variant.
1: Okay, let me take the point then to Thomas that uh, that what what Brooke is saying is that the the, the exclusive that the companies have to to manufacture. Um, in itself uh, I- implies and almost guarantees delay in, in uh, spread in, uh, of, uh, or dissemination of the vaccine at a time when we're fearful of variants spreading around the world, and that it would just make sense to get many more places up and running, producing vaccines as soon as we could, even if there are going to be complications and delays.
3: We have just heard how actually complex it is to scaling up. Somehow, when I occasionally listen to some politicians in Europe, I have the feeling that their view is you get the market approval for a vaccine and then the CEO or the prime minister comes, pushes the button, and the 10 billion doses, 10 billion, not 100 billion, roll out. It's not that easy because when you look at, for example, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, it has 238 ingredients. And these 238 ingredients used to make the vaccine – are manufactured in 18 different countries. Therefore, one of our headaches is, for example, free of flow of goods. You have seen just the other day that India said we have such a surge in COVID cases. We need to give priority to domestic vaccinations. Uh, we know that you have pretty much the same situation in the US with the Defense Production Act. And we have recently seen the spat between the European Union and the UK about it. Therefore, Unfortunately and sadly, we are confronted with quite a bit of vaccine nationalism. At the same time, we also should not ignore the fact where did COVID-19 hit the hardest. Eighty percent of the cases, and I'm here quoting uh, Dr. Tedros, the DG of WHO, were basically in Europe, UK, US and Latin America. And when you look at where do you have the fastest rollouts, actually one of the fastest countries was Chile. And when you look at the contrast, for example, between Chile, which really fast, well prepared, and Brazil, where you had a bit of an anti-vax president, I'm not quite sure that it's the rich countries get everything. It's also a question of how well countries are prepared. You have collaborations in Thailand, in Brazil, in Argentina. I've never seen such a large-scale partnership, but... And that's where Brooke, in my view, underestimate the complexity. Vaccines are used on healthy persons. Vaccines are not a cancer drug where you risk benefit assessment in terms of saving lives. You may be willing to accept the risk on healthy people. We really can't afford to cut corners. 70% of vaccine manufacturing is quality assurance. Quality assurance where you need pharmacists, biologists, scientists at every stage of vaccine manufacturing. And that's why volunteer tech transfer is the way to go about it. Waving patents is not like, you know, even if you have a recipe for cake, having the recipe doesn't mean that your cake will come out perfect. With vaccines, it's even more complex.
1: You've been listening to Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared US is a nonpartisan, non-profit organization. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
1: Brooke, can you take on the, the cake metaphor?
2: No one is arguing for any compromise on quality. Uh, uh, no one. Uh, but there are quality manufacturers that we know of that are not getting, not getting their phone calls answered. There's a, there's a company in Canada which has asked for voluntary licenses from two companies and not received them, and so is pursuing potentially a compulsory licensing option in Canada. There's been major news stories about a a, a, a very significant vaccine producer who already exports. Can I can I can I just jump in for, for
1: for you to if you have any insight on why the Canadian company is not getting that phone call? Why why would uh, why would a pharmacy who whatever pharmaceutical company they're reaching out to not want to cooperate voluntarily?
2: I, I think they want to keep it within their cartel. You know, they their cartel and their favored contract manufacturing organizations. And and what what we're arguing is that there's more compa- underutilized capacity that they're not willing to to use, and that the countries and, and populations that are not receiving the vaccine shouldn't have industry stand in the way uh, to to prevent sales that the, that the companies aren't making themselves or aren't promising deliveries until the 2022 2023. Uh, but again, there's a major vaccine producer in, in Bangladesh that, that, that is also saying, you know, we have plenty of capacity. We could make 700 million doses. Why aren't they coming to us? We, we, we've we indicated to them that we're willing and capable. And this is a quality producer. And we think there's other, you know, similar examples of underutilized capacity. But the, the real issue is, uh, in, in part from our perspective, is that we need to have a a global system of vaccine capacity that can be easily ramped up and used not only to finish out this pandemic, but to be prepared for the next one. And to ensure that people in in low and middle countries, many of whom don't receive the, the, the vaccines that they need at this point, that there be production capacity for that. So we're to some extent arguing about building for the future instead of uh, doing what industry doing is patching together a supply chain that basically favors rich countries and, and poor countries may receive doses, uh, you know, uh, late in the game. But that increases the risk to all of us because the unvaccinated populations are the populations in which the variants will develop and have developed. And then the capacity that's already in place will be used for booster shots. And revaccinations, and again, poor countries will be left behind. Well, we 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 heard.
1: I, I hear you saying that the vaccine dissemination is happening in the rich countries, not the poor countries. But Thomas made the point that COVID is happening more in the rich countries than in the poor countries. That in fact, the vaccines are being delivered to the place where there's most infection and most sickness, and that that there's a logic to that. That is not just about rich and poor. What about your response to that?
2: Well, uh, most countries, uh, low-income countries, have had vastly inequitable access to diagnostic testing as well. I mean, they did a study, there's a study from, from Zambia that showed that the, the number of deaths that were ultimately concluded to be COVID-related was far uh, 10 times greater than the number of people who had been tested who died uh in the absence of testing you don't know you know that they're excess deaths but you really have to undertake an investigation to see whether they are in fact specifically covid related directly covid related so many people think that there's a grotesque underestimation of the severity of the pandemic even in sub saharan africa um, but uh, you know but the, the other the other problem is we have we have new variants which are m- more virulent and more easily transmitted we, we have certainly an accelerating uh, pandemic in and, and several regions of the world, including Sub-Saharan Africa. And, and Latin America is, is, uh, has, you know, very, very high rates of infection uh, with new variants. We see that the, the situation is worse than, than we've sometimes been led to believe, and that variants are making it even worse yet. Uh, and therefore, saying that we've delivered to the U.S. and Europe because they're, they're at highest risk, um, you know, I, I think it's. I have two shots in my left arm. Um, I I was c- received my second vaccination uh, last week, uh, and, and I'm grateful for that. But I, I'm not. I don't. I don't feel great about it. In that, a person my age in other countries doesn't have that same access. Um, that that they that people who are just as good as me, just like me, uh, many places in the world are going to wait uh, uh, as many as two years. Uh, or more to get this vaccine that that you know how can we justify a system that produces that result that's the result so how can we defend the system that is producing that result
3: thomas Yes, but I have to admit, I'm a little bit shocked about the overplaying this rich countries get at all. I have a friend in Belgium whose 79 year husband with a, uh, w- a pre existing condition, serious, doesn't know yet when he will be vaccinated. You know, I'm actually past 65 in Switzerland. I and my wife, we don't know yet when we will get the shots. Therefore, let's not pretend that rich countries get all and they are perfect. And also let's not forget it is certainly true that no one is safe until everyone is safe. And I'm deeply concerned about, you know, too much vaccine nationalism. But even with the underreporting of tests, Because of the much younger population, Africa was less impacted than the US, than Europe, than than Latin America. And and that does play a role. Also, part of the strength of our system, when I look at Moderna, Pfizer-BioNTech, and all the other companies, they're already working on adjusting, tweaking their vaccines to the new variants. And they do so because... They know that they can rely on the system. They know, and that's what I think is so much flawed in this focus on the patent, because if you would take away the patent, this is not just like adding water to the soup. You need a willingness to share know-how, to train scientists, to work on actually also procurement of raw materials. The biggest headache right now is... Can companies get the giant plastic bags which they need for the single-use bioreactors? Are enough nono, lipid nanoparticles available which you need to encode the mRNA vaccines which bring these vaccines into the body and which is so effective? Do we have enough filters? And some of you may have seen there was recently concern that one of the biggest pharma companies in the world alerted the authorities that they may be impacting manufacturing cancer drugs or drugs against rare disease because these raw materials are in short supply. And again, you can't just push the button. What we are doing is we are reaching out also with the suppliers, and we do have companies such as Millipore, owned by the German Mark Merck and others, scaling up, you know, ingredients, scaling up the single-use bioreactors. I, I must say the industry has really risen to the occasion, not abused the system. And reached out to the companies who, thanks to the Global Vaccines Alliance, where, by the way, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation played a big role, we do have capacity and know-how in India, producing hundreds of millions. And what Brooke said in terms of where's the capacity? Largest capacity, more than 3 billion doses this year is most likely in China, I would wish to know a little bit more about the safety and efficacy of their vaccines. They're less transparency than on uh, on on the ones from Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, or AstraZeneca, and we have equally large numbers from India. Thomas, I want to
1: ask you this question. That's a little bit takes a little bit of imagination, I suppose. But if in fact the World Trade Organization would were to decide to Temporarily suspend patent protection for these companies. How would that affect the behavior of these companies? What would change?
3: There are two things. One is it wouldn't give you a single dose more, because whatever needs to be done right now is happening. Second, I would be concerned about the short term impact. Right now, companies are, you know, looking for partners meeting their quality requirements. Johnson & Johnson said publicly they were looking at more than a 100 different sites, different partners, out of which less than 10 met their quality standards. Uh, and I've heard people from international organizations basically confirm that. Uh, therefore, I'm a little bit cautious when Brooks says you have high-quality manufacturers. Not every high-quality manufacturers who pretends he is really meets the standards you would want the FDA or the European Medicines Agency to impose. But the second one where I'm really concerned is that companies now doing that, would they be as willing to not just, you know, share the patent because the patent doesn't give you the know-how to produce the vaccine. You need the skill set. You need the joint training of people. You need the sharing of knowledge. You can't enforce that sharing of knowledge, but longer term, it would be a disaster because right now we have seen every big and small company in the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. We had several of them succeeding because they know that they could trust the legal framework, which helped us to get such a strong innovation ecosystem. What signal would that send for future pandemics? Because we know for sure there will be future pandemics. And what I see right now is already in two weeks, I'm participating in an Africa uh Vaccine manufacturing summit organized by the African Union and organized by the African CDC. And the discussion there will be how can we be better prepared for the next pandemic? What kind of roadmap need? Do we need to engage on? How can we stimulate and enable partnerships of the likes we now see with Indian manufacturing companies and set up potentially a network, for example, of ever-warm mRNA vaccine plants in Africa? This is not something you can really get done overnight. This needs time, and it needs to be sustainable. Brooke, so...
1: What we hear from Thomas saying in answer to my question, that if, if, if you were to deprive the pharmaceutical companies now of some of the uh, revenue that they are expecting from this under the current rules, that they may not show up next time that they're needed. What do you think of that?
2: Well, I, I think that's the the question which is in the psyche of, not not to be disrespectful of all of us sitting on this call, but of, of rich people who know they're going to get the products themselves, right? Uh, we're, we're willing that a premium price, uh, super profits would be paid to companies that, that are going to extend our lives. Um, and, and the question, well, is it, you know, is it a 50% profit or is it a 90% profit really tends not to concern us because we, we know that we have insurance that will pay for it. Um, and we're rich enough to get it. And so this is, this is an argument which I think has Particular salience uh, among many of our listeners who who think I want companies to invest in the next life-saving product, but I think if you step back, you say, well, how much extra profit should be made, and what what are the what are the costs of that profit-making system, and uh, that that we say that we basically sit and listen to a company saying we may not do future re- uh, uh, research and development unless you pay us super profits, not just normal profits, but super profits you you both invest in the research and development you help de-risk our uh, research and development um and then you give us a monopoly that we will want to, to perpetuate into the future and and we want to earn very high rates of return we want to be the second most profitable industry in in the world as a result of, of the of the intellectual property rights you give us well that is what industry has come to expect But is it the the only way, the best way for for, uh, the public, basically, you know, the payers to pay for the medical innovation we need? Uh, You know, when when I hear industry say, well, we may walk away, I'd say, well, how dare you? How dare you say we're going to walk away from human health need unless you give us super profits? I, I'm not talking that there should not be compensation for research and development there should be there has i think there should be more public funding of research and development I think should there should be better focus in research and development I think there should be less wastage in research and development but that doesn't mean that because you know scientists work shoulder to, to shoulder shoulder to shoulder that we let a private company basically charge super high prices which which, typically price many poor countries out of the market and in which they get to preferentially supply rich people in rich countries first. That's not a, that's not a system for delivering a global public good like a coronavirus vaccine.
1: I'd like to give you each um, about 30 seconds for concluding thoughts uh, as we wrap up. So, Thomas, um, your final thoughts on the topic we've been discussing?
3: You know, what I just heard is mind-bogglingly untrue. This is not about super profit companies offer the vaccines at very low prices, best price to COVAX for the poor countries in the world. I think that's a, a fact. And, and second, we fully agree these vaccines need to be free fall. That's why you do need... At the funding system through the COVAX, where the poorest countries in the world all get their vaccines for free. But actually, we are able to do that because we are starting from this strong system where companies can rely on a legal framework, which incentivizes them to do that. You see what happens if you don't have it in the antibiotics field, We are desperate to get novel antibiotics, and I was actually instrumental in getting the industry investing a billion dollars in an AMR action fund for research into novel antibiotics, but clearly stating the solution has to be recreating a sustainable antibiotics market. That's the same. We need a sustainable vaccines market. It's great that we had COVID-19 vaccines now, and we need to make sure that we have them for the next pandemic.
1: Thank you, Thomas. And Brooke Baker, your closing thoughts.
2: So, so my closing thoughts are um, we can do better and we should do better. Uh, we, we, can, uh, we can say that certain things have been accomplished uh, and that uh, there's been a remarkable development of coronavirus vaccines, but still have criticisms of the system as it exists, particularly in that it has resulted as of today in inadequate supplies, uh, needlessly high prices, and grossly inequitable access. Uh, if, if that status quo satisfies people, um, and if they feel safe, even if that status quo will result in new variants arising and, and a need for repeated vaccines, uh, vaccinations in, in every country, including the U.S. and Europe, with all the social and economic uh, disruption that would occur, then, then they'll agree with Thomas. Uh, but if they think that we should explore and think about other ways, and that we have to mount a more massive and coordinated and effort to create global solidarity in response to this this uh, this terrible pandemic which has befallen us, and if we think that our brothers and sisters everywhere in the world deserve the same kind of access to vaccines that we can get, uh, uh, you know, this year uh, in in our countries. Then they'll they'll be supporting things like the w, the WTO trips waiver the waiver of intellectual property rights, and they'll be supporting governments bringing industry to the table in a more forceful way to more broadly share their technology so that we can quickly ramp up supply even more than we are.
1: Well, Brooke Baker and Thomas Cooney, I want to thank both of you for taking part in this conversation and also for doing so in a way that was so uh, respectful to one another and informative. That's what we really aim for at intelligence squared where our goal is to raise the level of public discourse you both helped us participate in and in, in exactly that project just now so thank you to you thomas and thank you to you brooke
3: thanks a lot so john
1: and thank you all for tuning into this episode of intelligence squared uh, this is the first in a series of debates we're going to be doing on the topic of vaccines and how they should be rolled out and how the law should treat them and also, what normal is going to look like after we get them all. You can get all of these debates and things like our Sunday newsletter and special invitations to our live events by subscribing at IQ2US.org. That's IQ2US.org. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. This debate was recorded on March 30th. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claya Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Shea O'Mara is consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.